Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. And before we get into things, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch, our niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com, and subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we have weekly bonus episodes plus a ton of other perks. This week, we took so many fun mailbag questions from our Patreon listeners about Dua, about Ariana, about our personal listening habits. It was such a fun episode, so don't forget to subscribe there at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or you can click the link in the show notes of this episode. Also, two gorgeous gorgeouses on the horizon. The first, which is Saturday, is Gorgeous Gorgeous's relaunch at a new venue in Los Angeles. We will be at Los Globos on Sunset Boulevard. We're so excited about this. And to celebrate the launch, we are going to be honoring our girl, Mother Monster, Lady Gaga, all night. So I would love to see my LA niche legends out at this party. This is a really exciting moment for Gorgeous Gorgeous. We have this new venue. It's Gaga night. It's our first party of 2024 so this saturday january 13th gorgeous gorgeous los globos tickets are available in the show notes of this episode and then of course for my new york girls on february 3rd we will be back at the sultan room in bushwick and tickets for that will also be available in the show notes of this episode okay so for our first a side of the year we're getting into the interesting turmoiled career of disney star turned pop diva Demi Lovato. So without further ado, here is that episode. I want to get something off my chest right up top. I think child stardom should be illegal. At this point, I can't count the number of times on this show where we've been talking about a pop star who got famous before they could vote and how they were exploited, traumatized, how their childhood was robbed from them, and how fame and unprocessed grief led them down a dark road that few fully return from. I'm also not sure that there's any better emblem for this maxim this side of Britney than Demi Lovato, the talented but ceaselessly troubled Disney star turned pop diva, turned cautionary tale, turned poster child for struggle, who has spent the better part of the last 15 years quite or Honestly, it seems, performing some element of the painful breakdown and redemption cyclical narrative over and over and over again, both in her work and her celebrity presentation for our consumption. Demi first arrived to us as a squeaky clean 10-year-old tyke on Barney and Friends, and for the two decades since, has been on a nearly ceaseless journey of both front-facing coming apart and healing, as well as to define the quote-unquote real her for us in her music. She has a preternaturally powerful singing voice. She's also bravely made herself the poster child on record and off for brutal honesty about addictions and eating disorders and a myriad of other mental health struggles. And she's even stumbled into some pretty great hits along the way. But reflecting on the whole thing in macro, the main feeling I'm left with is, was it all worth it?
Demetria Devon Lovato was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her mother was a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader and her father was an engineer and musician. Demi's home life was deeply troubled from the beginning. She's chronicled divorce, mental illness, addiction, and abuse, among other toils. As a child, Demi learned to play piano and guitar, studied acting and dance, and competed in pageants. In 2002, she landed a role on Barney and Friends alongside Selena Gomez and, like Gomez, five years later found herself being loaded into the Disney machine, first on the sitcom as the bell rings, then the TV film with the Jonas Brothers, the juggernaut Camp Rock in 2008. The soundtrack featured a light rock inspirational anthem between Demi and Joe Jonas, This Is Me, that scored Demi a legit pop hit. The song went top 10, sold more than a million copies, and made Demi a superstar to a certain cohort of young people. Two months after Camp Rock, Demi released her debut album, the well-made but anodyne guitar forward Don't Forget. That album, which featured songwriting and production credits from the Jonas Brothers across most of its tracks performed well. It debuted at number two, was certified gold, and produced two platinum singles, La La Land and the title track. After Camp Rock, Demi became a Disney marquee, landing her own sitcom, Sunny with a Chance, and appearing in more TV films, including a Camp Rock sequel packaged with a Demi Forward soundtrack. At the same time, she worked with Disney's in-house label Hollywood Records on new music. First was 2009's Here We Go Again, which operated more or less in the same kids bop Kelly Clarkson vein as her debut, and then 2011's more electronic, hip-hop, and dance music-oriented Unbroken. At the same time, Demi started to publicly struggle, leaving a Jonas Brothers tour in late 2010 to enter a treatment facility for quote-unquote emotional issues. Reports followed that Demi had assaulted a backup dancer, which she admitted to, acknowledging in 2011 she had been diagnosed as bipolar, was seeking treatment for bulimia and self-harm, and had been struggling with drugs and alcohol. Thus began a cycle wherein, throughout her musical oeuvre, Demi seemed to be constantly driven, or perhaps commanded to, respond to her rocky public narrative in her work, often with the intent of telling the public that while she'd reached rock bottom, rupturing her pristine Disney image, she'd now found healing and everything was okay. The template for this approach was Unbroken's lead single, Skyscraper, an uber-raw ballad recorded while Demi was on the verge of entering rehab, and that chronicles a phoenix rising from the ashes, featuring a quivering but undoubtedly deeply affecting vocal performance from Lovato. It became her second top 10. Demi followed up Skyscraper with Give Your Heart a Break, which didn't chart as high but was a huge seller, earning a quadruple platinum certification. In 2011, Demi expanded into reality TV, joining the X Factor judging table alongside Britney Spears. The next year, MTV released a documentary, Demi Lovato Stay Strong, about Demi's experiences in rehab. Demi's addiction and mental health continued to be a major part of her public narrative, and in early 2013, as she geared up for new music, it was revealed that she'd been residing in a social living facility for over a year. Four months later, Demi released her fourth album, simply titled Demi. An 80s synth-pop nodding record, this album also spoke to another thread in Demi's unfurling discography, wherein each subsequent album found her pivoting towards a new guy, sonically, lyrically, etc., one that finally represented the real her. 
her previous work, Be Damned. Demi sold more than 2 million copies and produced one massive hit, the glorious self-lacerating power ballad Heart Attack, which went five times platinum and peaked at number 10. Two years later, Demi formed her own label, Safe House Records, ahead of the release of her fifth album. Though she was still under contract with Disney's Hollywood Records, Safehouse struck a deal with Island to co-release 2015's Confident, signaling her adult ambitions to outgrow her tween-driven on-record persona. Demi also recruited a team of trusted hitmakers for the record, including Max Martin, Stargate, and Ilya, gesturing at her main pop girl ambitions. The lead single, the bi-curious slammer Cool for the Summer, marked another sonic departure for Demi, but yielded similar results to her past efforts, peaking at number 11 on the Hot 100. Confident sold about half of what Demi had in 2013, but it did produce another minor hit, the Gary Glitter nodding title track. Two years later, Demi returned to the top 10 with the gospel cum trap kiss off banger Sorry Not Sorry, her biggest hit and one of the best selling songs of her career. Sorry Not Sorry launched Demi's final project with Hollywood Records, 2017's Tell Me You Love Me, which once again pivoted Demi's sound, this time more overtly towards R&B. In 2018, Demi released a standalone single, Sober, and revealed she'd relapsed after six years of sobriety. A month later, she was rushed to Cedar sinai in LA due to an opioid overdose, which led to ongoing health struggles, including multiple strokes and a heart attack. The incident was one of the biggest news stories of the year, and Demi was the most Googled person of 2018. As a result of her personal struggles, she took a hiatus from music. The next year, she attempted to refocus her attention on her career, tapping Scooter Braun, then manager of both Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande, to get everything back on track. In 2021, Demi released another in a long string of documentaries chronicling her personal travails. This this time, a four-part series called Demi Lovato Dancing with the Devil that explored her relapse, return to rehab, and road to recovery. The same month, Demi came out as pansexual, then two months later came out as non-binary, and later announced her comfort with either they, them, or she, her pronouns. Presented as a companion to the doc, Demi's seventh album, Dancing with the Devil, The Art of Starting Over, dealt in the same themes of recovery and self-empowerment. While the album debuted in the top five, it didn't produce any hits. In 2022, Demi made yet another musical swerve with her eighth album, Holy Fuck, embracing rock and pop punk. That album was marketed as a return to her roots, sharing musical DNA with her debut album, Likewise, a pop rock effort, more than a decade earlier. Holy Fuck received some of the best critical notices of Demi's career, but made very little impact. Last year, Demi re-recorded rock versions of her old hits for a new collection titled Revamped. Demi Lovato has sold more than 24 million records in the United States. She has four platinum albums and two gold albums. Demi has four top 10 singles, 20 platinum singles, and eight additional gold singles. She has received 14 Teen Choice Awards, five People's Choice Awards, one Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, four ASCAP Pop Music Awards, two Latin American Music Awards, one Video Music Award, and one Glad Vanguard Award. She is a New York Times number one bestseller, was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people in 2017, and one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for that same year. Billboard named Demi Lovato as one of the 100 most successful musicians of the 2010s. Here with me to discuss the often harrowing, sometimes triumphant, but always very loud career of Demi Lovato is my friend Molly Mary O'Brien. Okay, I'm here once again with host of the podcast and introducing and the blogger behind I Enjoy Music, Molly Mary O'Brien. Molly, welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be back. 
Thrilled to have you back. Loved chatting with you first about Chromatica, then about No Doubt earlier this year. Today, I fear we're here for a conversation that I find a little bit more perplexing. Actually, I shouldn't say I fear because I do enjoy these conversations, but I want to get a read of the room of where you are on Demi Lovato, just to sort of show my cards a little bit. Yes. Think she's a wonderful person, big singing voice. I think omnipresent is not the right word because I think part of the story of Demi Lovato is her second or third sort of tierness in pop, but definitely around for a long time, gone through many phases and modes, made a lot of different kinds of music, had a lot of different on-record personas, or maybe a singular one that's been threaded through the whole thing the whole time and we never saw it, but has never really added up too much as a pop star, as a musician, despite a lot of earnesty, a lot of trying to come by who she is authentically in a way that I respect and a lot of honesty, I would say, that I really respect, especially for a star who became famous at a young age and who's been in the spotlight as she has been, but who on a musical front, on an artistic front, on the front of sheer pop stardomness has never made a ton of sense to me. That's where I'm at with it. Where are you at on the Demi journey? Yeah, that sounds familiar to me as well. I love Demi in that I love when you can kind of see how sweaty someone has to get in order to hang in there. Yeah. When pop stardom is effortless, that's obviously very beautiful. I just watched the Renaissance tour documentary and Beyonce is practically doing it in her sleep at this point. Right. It's great to see when people can kind of just glide through. Sure. Not that Beyonce hasn't been working hard, but whatever. Yes. She just doesn't show the work. She's like a bad math student. She doesn't show her work. Mm -hmm. Demi Lovato is, you can see it sometimes in real time, how hard she has to work to figure out where she is both like in the pop universe at large, figure out what she's trying to do with her own artistry. I feel like you pointed it out already that it's almost like the trying to become is the point of her entire career. Mm. And I want to shout out, I don't know if you had seen this, I had pulled up a Jezebel piece from a few years ago. They're talking about Demi Lovato being stuck in an authenticity loop where Mm. every album is... This one is the real one. Yes. Finally, I've figured out who I am. And you know what? The last one, that wasn't who I was, even though the last one, that was where she was saying, this is who I am. And the (laughs) one before that was not where I was. I kind of love, even though it doesn't work for me as a seamless pop star existence, I love watching people try to figure out how to do stuff like that. And so I have a soft spot for Demi Lovato. She's not my favorite, but I think she's super talented. I think, you know, I've listened to her entire discography in preparation for this podcast. The singles are often very fire. Yes. The album cuts, it's like, okay, they threw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and they found the few things that stuck. And then the rest of it, it's like, what are we doing here? So anyway, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited to get into all of that with you today. Me too. Me too. It feels like we're very much on the same page. A lot of empathy and a lot of respect in a certain sense, but it's so funny that you brought up that Jezebel piece because of course I did look at that, but it was after I had written at the top of my notes, right under where it says host of the podcast and introducing and blogger behind I Enjoy Music is a note that says, I feel like every Demi album is her going, no, actually this is the real me. Everything before wasn't over and over again for 15 years. And the only thing I have to add to that is interestingly, I think maybe aside from the last album or maybe the last two albums her music feels largely not bespoke 
in a way that sort of belies that search for authenticity through most of her music. It's not that it's even bad. It's just that it feels factory made. And that includes moments where she brings a lot of pathos to the music. And of course, there are moments prior to the last couple albums that do feel more directly personal and self-actualized. But a lot of the music feels like she's receiving maybe second or third string song machine songs, and then having to go a long way to imbue them with feeling. And as you said, often showing how much work is going into that imbuement. Yeah. Sometimes it's like the work to make those songs meaningful is the main thing that you get out of it, as opposed to maybe the emotional impact that she's hoping to deliver through that work or something like that. I think that's astute. That actually very much clarifies that sweatiness that I often see is that she's just working so hard to take like a Swedish or Norwegian (laughs) already been passed over. Heart Attack was supposed to be for Pia Toscano, who came in like 10th in American Idol, (laughs) which I'm just like, how do you get Pia Toscano's leftovers? That's odd. And yeah, so a lot of the work is the personalization of this pretty otherwise generic music. And it's so funny because I do think one of the curses in Demi's life has been this idea that her fans have her as a role model and as a role model of specifically empowerment and confidence and being yourself. Mm. And I'm like, I kind of don't know where they're getting it. because I don't think it's in the music itself. I think it's in more of the presentation of the personality and the identity. Yes. Which is a fascinating thing. I think the last thing that we should make sure is said before we get into the weeds here is that so much of Demi's story feels more important as the ground on which her stardom lies than her music for most of her career. And the music almost feels like Any deeper meaning that it's imbued with only is imbued with that because we are intimately familiar with the superstructure of the narrative. In thinking of sort of the genericism of a lot of the music, yes, she attempts and wills emotional depth into some of these songs, but I found myself trying to parse apart in my head how much of the meaning of this song has to do with the song itself or the performance of the song and how much of it has to do with how threadbare her narrative has been laid for us since she was a young person. Yeah. One thing I think will be interesting when we get into the Pantheon discussion of this episode is, does Demi's pop music career matter that much to the stardom of Demi Lovato or the story of Demi Lovato or how Demi Lovato will be remembered? Because Demi Lovato has been an important public figure and celebrity because of the honesty with which she has shared her tribulations and the sort of failures to live up to the ideals that she earnestly puts forth every time she sounds like she's gathered herself publicly. But the music churns on understanding the public narrative and feels secondary to the public narrative. Yes. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we get now a documentary every album release, (laughs) which is crazy. It is crazy. I mean, you could point out that Beyonce or like Taylor Swift do the same thing, but not to the level like every Demi release gets a corresponding documentary about how hard her life has been up to this point. Yes. And what she lied about the previous time (laughs) or earnestly believed was the truth (laughs) yes of course I think it was the Simply Complicated documentary, which I think was 2017, where she's like, the last time I sat down this long for an interview, I was on cocaine, which I'm like, 
Honestly, that stresses me out because... What's happening now? Yeah, and then in the next one, she's like, I'm very comfortable being California sober. And then two months later is like, California sobriety was leading me to full-fledged addiction. Yeah, the music absolutely is coming secondary to like these confessional moments that correct the previous confessional moment, which is fascinating. Right, and the difference between her and Beyonce and Taylor is that no matter how much super narrative there is, especially with Taylor, the music is strong enough to stand on its own two legs. So at the end of the day, we return to the music as the central organizing principle. And I think with Demi, that's often not the case. We're left mostly with the narrative and the music feels secondary to the narrative. That isn't to say that there hasn't been some great songs. That isn't to say that she isn't in some ways a very talented performer. And I think we'll talk about the music that has worked better, worked less well, and the whole journey. I mean, look, I don't wish child stardom on anybody. And I think nobody's story speaks to that more clearly than Demi Lovato's, maybe besides Britney, perhaps. They stand in the great lineage of Disney stars and why that is child abuse. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get into the details here. We don't have to go into minute detail here, but what is the early story of Demi Lovato? I think as we were talking about, this is a person for whom personal narrative is very important. Early childhood narrative is very important. Parental relationship is very important to understanding her artistry and her point of view as a pop star and singer. What do we need to know about Demi Lovato's early life and early identity that feels instructive to her pop stardom? Yeah, she grew up in Dallas, I believe. Yes. Her mom was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. And her father was an engineer and a musician who was out of their life fairly early. I believe her parents split up when Demi was like two or three years old. Mm. And she's since said that her father was manipulative, abusive, had a substance abuse problem. She was a pageant girl. It's funny. I don't even think it's in her Wikipedia, but that is honestly one of the most important things I think to understand about her origins is obviously pageants have a talent portion, which is where she kind of discovered her interest in music and her skill as a singer in particular, but obviously a huge image portion of pageants of looking perfect and seeking perfection is a part of her early existence, which then ends up going down a very dark road. She talks about in these documentaries that she's worried that she's overweight when she's like five years old, which is absolutely heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But then the pageants kind of shoot her into this music talent zone where you get the footage of her singing My Heart Will Go On in front of her school class when she's like seven. Mm. She catches the bug. Most interesting to me is that her idol at this time was Shirley Temple. Mm. She's not just interested in being an adult superstar. She wants to be a child star, which I feel like is an interesting angle to start with. Demi goes into this willingly, as I feel like you must if you have that kind of ambition when you're that young. But she kind of ends up on this aspiring child star track where she's trying to model and she's going on auditions and she's not getting them. And that finally culminates in getting cast on Barney. Right. Which I watched Barney when I was a kid, but this was like slightly too late Barney for me. (laughs) (laughs) It was late period. Late period Barney. It was Barney in decline. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I missed out on the (laughs) Demi and then Selena Gomez, her co-star and eventual fellow Disney star slash rival. So that's what gets her really into the track of fame is going on Barney. Right. Sing a little song called Turkey in the Straw. Yeehaw! Oh, 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 oh,
But it's hard work, too. You're right. Yep. I feel like it's very important to point out also that her father is of Nuevo Mexicano descent, and her mom is Portuguese and Jewish, essentially, which is just in thinking about Demi as constantly in search of identity. I think it needs to be stated that, of course, Demi exists in the status of ethnic minority throughout her childhood and yeah. all of the prejudice therein. And I think that it just feels important, I guess, to sort of make sure that we state that from the top. Totally. Demi is attempting to enter a world of child stardom and of Disney stardom that at this particular turn is largely white. Yeah. And of course, a world that largely plays towards a specific version of white femininity that I think probably feels instructive to understanding some of the later searches for truth and authenticity in herself that animates a lot of her musical choices and career choices moving forward. Yeah, totally. Totally. So her story really mirrors Selena's very closely. We did an episode on Selena. It's fascinating how intertwined they all are and Miley's, honestly. Mm -hmm. But Demi has her big break in around 2007, 2008, playing in kind of like a twofer where she gets cast in a Disney Channel short series called As the Bell Rings, which leads to the one-two punch of this made-for-TV movie called Camp Rock, which is co-starring then-super-famous Joe Jonas of the Jonas Brothers, yep. and then a series called Sunny with a Chance, which she's the lead in. I watched a few episodes of it. She basically plays a girl who gets cast on like a sketch comedy show and then moves to Hollywood, becomes famous, and the show is about her on-set life. And it's kind of this bizarre meta-commentary looking back on it in terms of like a show about child stars dealing with child stardom that's starring child stars that are also dealing with child stardom. <laughs> it's kind of twisted in that way. Sonny's got an original new song. Let's hear it. I can make the rain stop if I wanna just by my attitude. Huh. It's causing a big backstage scene. I can't believe you stole my song. It's not your song. It is my song. And for the first time ever, Sonny sings. Demi Lovato is Sonny with a song. An all-new Sonny with a Chance event. There will be magic. New episode Sunday at 8, 7 central on Disney Channel. It's funny. It was a little past my time when this came out. Same. It was 2008, 2009. So your girl was going off to college. Yes. <laughs> was, likewise. Yeah. I was a little too busy trying to figure out how to smoke really complicated <laughs> weed pipes. Although, to be fair... I believe so was Debbie. <laughs> That's true. We honestly probably had more in common than we realized at the time. Yeah. So I missed at the time, but I watched a bit of Camp Rock to prepare for this and yes. some clips from Sunny with a Chance. First of all, it's just so funny that Disney at this time was like, what are we good at? We're good at launching child stars. And, you know, especially between Sunny with a Chance, Camp Rock and the Hannah Montana machine. Yes. It's like we can make these pieces of content about ambitious, special young women, which makes sense because these are the people who are auditioning. They don't really have to act because they are those people. That's what they also want. It shows about kids who want to be stars with, you know, cast of kids who want to be stars. Yes. The tone was really interesting. This whole like zone, which I'm sure you talked a little bit about Wizards of Waverly Place when you did Selena Gomez is like... We certainly did. It's so clearly written by 40-year-olds <laughs> and it has this semi-self-aware zaniness. Right. It hits kids, but you're like, this feels like 
like a product made by Gen X people being like, what do the kids want? And also who like loved Cheers or something and are just very addicted to that very specific old school sitcom format. Right. The multi-camera laugh track thing. Exactly. But Demi, I mean, you can see when she's in these products that she's got an it factor and she's pleasant to watch and sweet and charismatic. You can see why they wanted her in this stuff. And it's funny. I think we'll probably talk about it shortly. But the other focus from the Demi products is she's like a rocker. Right. (laughs) But she's like the cutest, sweetest rocker you could possibly imagine. It's the Disney focus group version of like a rock star, which is basically like a normal person who wears a little bit more smoky eyeshadow than maybe (laughs) Britney Spears did back in the day. Some of the outfits are just unbelievable. Yeah. There was an outfit in a Sunny with a Chance episode. It's like she's in a t-shirt and like a black vest with the most necklaces I've ever seen in my life. 39 necklaces hanging to her navel. It was a special time for fashion. It's always the vest. (laughs) The vest budget at Disney was healthy. I have two things I want to respond to about your description here. The second of which will circle back to the rock thing, which obviously is where I want to go next. But it was interesting watching Camp Rock and some of Sunny with a chance about just sort of contrasting Demi's persona with the Disney girls of her generation, namely Miley and Selena. I think that what was intriguing to me is When you watch old Hannah Montana episodes and Miley continues to be this person to this day, you just are seeing somebody with just an absolutely superhuman level of confidence. Yeah. Just total classic performer, entertainer, X Factor. I was born on the stage. This is where I'm at home is the feeling you get from Miley. Just Mm -hmm. uber confidence, uber security in front of the camera. And Demi is a natural definitely in many ways. But I felt like her persona is much more kind of like the earnest outsider who seems somewhat unsure of herself. Yeah. Way more so than Miley's was. And I think this show was seen as the next version of Hannah Montana. I think it came out after Hannah Montana and clearly the success of Hannah Montana very much informed the tone and feel of this show and of this character. And there are elements, of course, to the character and the show that feel very much in conversation with who Hannah Montana was and what Hannah Montana was about. But Demi is different than Miley on screen. She brings a sense of vulnerability to the character that is not just this happy-go-lucky, uber-confident person. You can sense Demi's pain. I don't know how else <laughs> yeah. to say it. Demi's pain is palpable even in the framework of this incredibly anodyne, super glossy, kid-oriented film and TV show, which I thought was just interesting. Hi. Do you work here? Uh, yes. Wow. You really get into your work. I'm Shane. But I'm sure even the kitchen help knows that. Of course. It's nice to meet you. Actually, it's not so nice. It's hard not to compare Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, and Demi Lovato just because they all did come through in the same time period and it is what it is. But then you see it kind of in how Miley Cyrus and Demi Lovato are now is that I feel like Miley also grabbed that sense of authenticity first, probably from her birthright of being Dolly Parton's goddaughter and Billy Ray Cyrus's daughter and all that stuff. Like a predestiny. Yeah, yes. It's like a preternatural birthright, as you mentioned, in a way that makes her enjoyable and entertaining to this day as a performer, but also maybe less relatable than somebody like Demi. Yeah. So 
the other thing I wanted to touch on is this kind of rocker, guys, that applies to Demi specifically, but also seems to be the engine behind how Disney markets all of these women as they transition from the sort of dual role of TV movie star to pop musician. This mode of pop punk rock that feels very much like the lingua franca of this generation of Disney kids. Maybe we can talk about this in the context of Demi's breakout song, which is the song This Is Me. It's a duet with Joe Jonas that's featured on the soundtrack of Camp Rock and I think speaks to what we're saying about Demi's character here, which is Demi's character in the show is searching for the self-confidence to be the superstar singer and songwriter that she is. She's at a camp yeah. in the movie for aspiring singers, songwriters, and the summer culminates with them doing this epic performance and Demi's written this song and she comes from a poorer background and her mom works in the kitchen and she's trying to hide that from the cool kids whose parents are pop stars, yeah. which is just so funny. And she writes this very earnest song. She didn't actually write the song in real life, but in the film, she writes the song, This Is Me, which is essentially like a proclamation of identity, yeah. which obviously becomes a big thematic concern of Demi's musical career moving forward. But I would describe it as almost like Michelle Branchian version of rock. Yeah. I had Michelle Branch written down as well. It's so funny because the aesthetics is like arm warmers and sweatbands and, and then the songs itself are like kind of Christian contemporary. Yeah. Which I think one of the people who wrote it started out kind of in the Christian zone and then he ended up writing for Jesse McCartney and then kind of slid in. I had Michelle Branch and then I had this song sounds so much like My Happy Ending by Avril Lavigne. Oh, totally, totally that. But with no edge, yes. no edge. I mean, this song makes Avril Lavigne sound like the Ramones or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's rock, but it's pop rock and it's pretty standard. It's not edgy, but I mean, and it showcases, I feel like the Demi Lovato voice of this time. Mm -hmm. She had pipes and I think they were trying to emphasize the strength part of it. She wasn't doing runs and she wasn't being really elaborate with it, but she had some power behind her. Yes. But she didn't have a lot of edge. She was basically just kind of a very loud, sweet voice. A loud, sweet girl next door. But honestly... And like, we'll get into this as it goes on. Power without a lot of nuance feels like a general description of Demi Lovato's singing voice. Yes. Throughout much of her career. I would agree with there that. There is a lot of screaming that goes on. <laughs> so also just in terms of setting up super narrative things, Joe Jonas, her duet partner on this song, is also going to be a fleeting romance for her IRL around this time period too. What I want to circle back to is in setting up Demi's first couple of albums that come out on Hollywood Records in the wake of the success of This Is Me, which becomes a top 10 hit on the Billboard Hot 100. Like, I think it's safe to say that the film and television show were hits in the Disneyverse. If you were a kid around this time, if you were part of that channel's ecosystem, Demi Lovato was probably a big star to you, but yeah. not outside of that. Would that be accurate? I would say so. This song breaks through in a bigger way. It becomes an actual top 10 Billboard Hot 100 hit. Although I have zero recollection of it. Do you remember it? I do not. Yes. I don't remember this escaping that kind of containment. Me neither, but it was shocking for me to see. It was a big hit. So she follows it up shortly with her debut album, Don't Forget. And before we talk about that, I just want to talk more broadly. What do you think 
was the function of this guys for this generation of stars in Toto. I don't want to take away Demi Lovato's agency because of course she has circled back to rock aesthetics in her most recent work, but it feels more like that was a idea that Disney executives had for this whole generation of Disney stars. Yeah. That was notably different from the preceding generation in which lascivious R&B oriented dance pop felt like the modus operandi for the Britney Christina Justin cohort. I'm wondering why this was an appealing or effective guys. Why pop, rock, look, feel, aesthetic, sounds, lyrical conceits, attitudes was the sort of de rigueur style for this generation of pop stars, do you think? I love thinking about stuff like this because, yeah, as I personally watched the wave change from the Britney Christina mode to this, I was like, ah, I see what they're doing. <laughs> to me, it's a return to innocence through rock authenticity. Mm. I say that with quotes. This was at a point when that first generation was kind of flaming out. You had Britney Spears basically crashing and burning with her mental health crises. And I think they realized that that mode of you start with something kind of innocent, more in the Euro pop zone, and then you have your second album where the snake comes out of the metaphorical cage <laughs> and you start doing like more sexualized genres of, you know, hip hop and R&B and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. They're like, all right, we have done this and this does not work. We need to do something else. What's interesting to me is that in the rock universe of this time, everyone talks about the early 2000s as being a crazy time for rock yeah. because a lot of the 90s folks did not know what to do. You had new metal coming up and Limp Biscuit taking over everything and Corn and Linkin Park. Yes. Late 2000s, also kind of a crazy time for rock and roll. Coldplay was huge. Yes. Then you had this weird synth punk emo thing of 303 and Gym Class Heroes. It was fractured in this really interesting way. And then I feel like Disney was like, we can kind of do middle of the road, adult-oriented rock, but made by teenagers. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it makes people forget that the way we treated that last generation of people resulted in flameouts almost across the board. And now we've got these fresh-faced kids who are playing real instruments in the case of, you know, the Jonas Brothers. Right. That's my take on that. Yeah, I think my take is similar and also that I would add maybe perhaps the corrective was I think the criticism that got leveled at the music business machine in the wake of Britney especially was the sort of mm -hmm. over-sexualization of a child. And again, I don't mean to remove Britney's agency from that, but you are dealing with a not-of-legal-age woman at that particular moment who was presented to us with a very thinly-veiled salaciousness from the very beginning of her pop career. Yes. And I think that that was a criticism that was borne out, and I think many people attributed parts of her disassembling in public to the overhand that had sort of pushed her in that direction. Yeah. Now, I think importantly also is you have a counter movement to that that happens simultaneously to that, which is the Avril Lavigne into Pink into Kelly Clarkson movement of equally pop-oriented women, but who are sort of abandoning the image of a male envisioned sexuality for women mm -hmm. by turning 
trying to rock aesthetics because I think the problem that you have here is that teens want music to feel edgy. Mm -hmm. Part of the transition that gets you out of making This Is Me and into quote unquote more adult music, although I don't know if that's what you would refer to either Britney's early work or Demi or Selena or Miley's early work. Teens would like to feel that what they're getting is something with edge, but the edge in the Britney generation was presented to us through the lens of sexuality. And I think what the rock music guys gives is the illusion of edge because we associate edge with rock and roll. It's like a knee jerk reaction we have to the birth of rock and roll or to the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. We hear guitar and we think edge, even if the music has no edge. Yes. And I think that that is an important element of why this style was something that I think a marketing executive at Disney was like, here's what we got to do with these girls. We're not making them sex bots. We're going to make them rock gods because that will allow the music to feel cool without us having the patina of over-sexualizing children. Yes. And I think that that's what the success of an Avril and then the success of a Kelly Clarkson proved to people. And I think that as a result, they also became cool in the sense that they were counter-programming to the center. It was that confluence of events that I think calcified generation to generation. Like by the time we get to the Demi, Miley, Selena version of this, we're almost three generations removed from Avril in terms of that mode of pop stardom, if that makes sense. I think that's a great read. It is also funny that there's no dancing really anymore. I mean, there's a little, there's a very funny dance scene in Camp Rock that I'm like, oh my goodness. They course corrected (laughs) so hard from sexy dancing that now we're doing, it's like that vine of the woman who's like, I'm like Renata something and I'm your like free dance instructor. (laughs) God, I forgot about that. And Joe Jonas leads the dance. Joe Jonas, noted dance aficionado, was the leader of the phalanx. (laughs) Right. I think that's a very good read that they were trying to find the edge in non-sexy music. And then that still lays it up for everyone to have their sexy coming out eventually anyway. Exactly. Which is the most important thing that a woman can do in pop is have their (laughs) sexy coming out. (laughs) Yeah. So Demi has this blow up in the Disney universe with this film and TV show. She has her first quote-unquote breakthrough hit, although I, as Molly and I were saying, not something that either of us as adult human beings at this time were aware of. And then she releases a couple of albums that I kind of want to talk about in Toto in 2008 and 2009, which are Don't Forget in 08 and Here We Go Again in 09. And there's a series of singles that we can talk about. I want to give this a broad overview and we can zoom in on specific songs that you feel are important here. There's singles here like Get Back, Don't Forget, Here We Go Again. In terms of what we're speaking about, what do these songs sound like and how do they present Demi on record? What is Demi Lovato as a pop star in this early music? It's more of the pop rock vibe. They will not let her around a programmed drum or at least something that sounds like it. It's definitely in the same vein as the camp rock thing. It's funny because Celia Gomez was also in like, I'm putting band in quotes. She was, it was a band. Yes. The scene, obviously one of rock's greatest outfits of all time. Yeah. It's inoffensive teen pop in a rock mode. And like I said at the beginning, I feel like the singles stand out and the singles feel catchy and true to whatever her vision of herself is at this time. And then the rest of it is just filler. Right. Which I don't think you can really avoid if you're putting out a Disney Network associated album at this time. So inoffensive, not bad, not great is the what I got from those early records, basically. One thing that was interesting to me is the way that they attempt to like telegraph individuality and rebellion in the context of 
absolute stitched up paint by numbers could be anyone pop songs there's that song la la land which i think opens the first record which has lyrics like i ain't no supermodel i still eat mcdonald's that's just me or who said i can't wear my converse with my dress baby that's just me like nobody I- nobody said you couldn't do that they were encouraging that a disney executive probably handed you that outfit and said please wear this literally No, it's good. It's great. It is. That song's really good. I enjoyed Get Back, which kind of gives me Tommy Two-Tone, 8675309 a little bit. <laughs> like kind of quintessential teen pop punk of this era. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like these songs trend more Kelly, less Michelle. Not of Destiny's Child, though. I meant more Clarkson, less Branch. Yes. Don't Forget definitely gives me like a bit of that Kelly Clarkson thrust. <laughs> And then her biggest hit, which was off of the second album, which is Here We Go Again, which hit number 15, definitely is giving Kelly Clarkson vibes. The long tail of Since You've Been Gone, I guess, just cannot be overstated in this scene. Yeah, to this day. To this day. All right, so in terms of how this music is positioned, like I mentioned, there's a series of what I'm gathering are kind of like minor hits here. Yeah. Like nothing's cracking the top 10, let's put it that way. But these albums are debuting high on the charts. They're selling half a million copies each. What is your interpretation as someone that was around during this phase of like how Demi's celebrity is functioning as she sort of parlays into pop stardom with these first couple records? Is she only famous to kids? Is she still only in the Disney world? Does this music break her out in meaningful ways. How is this received? Yeah, I don't remember it reaching my ears personally. Although I think at this point I was aware of Demi Lovato as a person. Same. And it was in this concept of it's the next wave of Disney stars. We've cracked the code and we figured out how to do it. And these are them. Chart-wise and like radio. Here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I have never listened to Radio Disney. She was probably tearing up Radio Disney. Oh, it was tearing Disney radio apart. Yeah. Disney radio couldn't handle the amount of Demi Lovato that was happening. Yeah. I think the ecosystem, she's in it. And I think she's not quite perceived in the wider world, which, you know, we have Beyonce doing her thing, Lady Gaga coming up. There's other narratives that are the top line of pop news at this point. I did want to pull up Here We Go Again was the fourth album of 2009 under the Disney Music Group to peak at number one. Whoa. So they were slinging hit records, but it was, I feel like, because people weren't perceiving these kids as adults and maybe were a little bit burned out from the last teen pop sensation moment that it didn't feel like it was creating culture. It felt like, at least for adults, I think it still felt like a kid thing. And out of step, I mean, I think one of the things with the pop rock thing that feels worth noting that I think you were sort of poking at earlier is we're kind of post this style of music dominating the center of pop. That felt more like a 2002, 3, 4, 5 mode. As you mentioned, we're at the dawn of 
Rihanna's dominance, of Gaga's dominance, of Kesha, of Katie, of this way more mm-hmm. synthetic dance pop yeah. style taking over the charts. I remember feeling like whatever awareness I had of this Disney cohort, I felt like it wasn't vanguard in any sense. It wasn't like even communicating overtly really with what was happening in adult pop music at this time. Yeah. One last question I have before we move on to some of the breaking points that sort of changed the Demi Lovato narrative for good, which come in the wake of this is how do you remember registering her versus Selena and Miley at this moment. Were you more or less aware of her than the other two? And if so, how? I was aware of her as part of the triumvirate of this next generation. But I think if I had to rank them at the time, it would be like Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, then Demi. She felt like the third tier. And I feel like that has maybe been consistent throughout in some ways. Although Selena Gomez, I feel like despite having the least active personality development in public has kind of slayed the charts in a way that the other two haven't consistently. Well, she's made the best music of the group, I think. Yeah. And has, unlike the other two, because I think one thing Demi and Miley share in common is the aesthetic lost in the woodsness sort of feeling that causes them to sort of adopt completely new personas or completely new musical ideas project to project. Selena, maybe because she's the least preternaturally talented of the bunch, has had to like find an aesthetic and style that's singular and works for her and has thus made the most sophisticated music of the bunch. That's my galaxy brain on them. Yeah. She's much more of a vessel for the songwriting as opposed to Demi, I think, is the opposite where she's trying to twist it toward what she wants out of it. But yeah, so I was definitely aware of her, but like, you know, especially what year was Party in the USA? Was that 2000? Yeah, it was 2009. And that was really the moment where Miley Cyrus became a legible pop star to me personally. Yes, same. So let's now pull back because I think most importantly, as we were sort of laying out at the top of the podcast, more importantly, I think, than Demi's initial musical forays. The thing that blows Demi into my consciousness originally is that around 2010, Demi essentially has like a public mental health crisis. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays out exactly? So... At the time, because I was aware of this too, especially since this was kind of the tail end of me being rather interested in like gossip blogs, tabloids. This is the last gasp of that for me personally anyway. Right. But it comes out that she had to cancel her remaining tour dates, which I think she was on a solo tour at this point. No, I believe actually she was on tour with the Jonas Brothers. Okay, so yeah. So that happened and she's going away for treatment for undisclosed, I believe they said physical and mental health issues. Yes. So it kind of wasn't clear what was happening. And then it wasn't until making documentaries <laughs> years later that you find out she's been struggling more or less secretly with everything from eating disorders to self-harm to substance abuse, drinking and doing drugs. And she's been doing like Adderall. I'm not sure if she's fully on the cocaine train yet, but she's getting pretty intense for someone who is a teenager. I was anorexic and then bulimic. And then I was suffering from self-harm addiction. And I knew that I couldn't go on with the lifestyle I was living and that something had to change. There was a lot of embarrassment and a lot of shame. Um, When I went into rehab, I felt like a failure and I felt like I had, you know, for everybody that told me growing up, you know, oh, you're going to be successful, but don't turn out like that one girl. You know, I felt like I turned into that one girl. And I was like, well, I just proved everybody 
right that I any any of my haters that I was gonna end up in rehab and um, you know I just let a lot of people down but I realized that by getting help I wasn't letting anybody down I was actually gaining respect from a lot of people because um, making that decision was very hard, but it ultimately would change my life. The specific incident that she has shared again in multiple documentaries is that she was in Columbia after a show, trashed her hotel room partying with a small group of people, including some backup dancers. One of her backup dancers tattled on her and said that she had been using Adderall recreationally. <laughs> and then Demi found out and punched this backup dancer in the face on their tour plane. That's what came out afterwards. I don't know how much of that came out at the time, but that's kind of a wild story in a way. Especially when you think about what her image was at that moment, which was extraordinarily squeaky yes. clean buttoned up in spite of the the crunchy guitars and the wailing about wanting to be yourself. I would say Demi's image prior to this was like most of her cohort in this period, squeaky, squeaky clean and very kid oriented, very, very young child friendly. Yes. You don't hear about physical violence done by these types of people <laughs> no, usually. No. But yeah, so that was a big deal that derailed her career in a sense because her bread and butter was these promotional moments and tours and stuff with people like the Jonas Brothers. I'm sure there was like a morality clause that she had to deal with at Disney as well. Like I can't imagine that was a fun time either. Right. Important to say that she's still on Sunny with a Chance. Yes. She is still on this show that is geared towards 10-year-old and at the same time is having a very, very publicly reported again. And we didn't know the details, but it was definitely very much in public that she was in treatment for various things and that her personal life was in crisis in a way that I'm sure was anathema to whatever Disney wanted to present about her. Yeah. And it was a pretty sharp curve from the reputation that she had to what happened versus something like Britney's experience was, I think, just a longer, slower situation. So yeah, that certainly shook things up for Demi's public persona. Do you remember the public reaction to this? I remember confusion. I kind of remember just like, wait, what is actually happening here? Mm. And it's also funny that, you know, I grew up at a time when the tabloid news from these pop stars was, it almost was mundane how often people would like go to rehab or cancel tours or cancel shows or whatever. Just be like, well, yeah, that's just it. Now as an adult, I'm like, that is a huge deal. Yeah. Canceling a tour is a huge deal. Right. A huge financial loss and liability reputational loss liability exactly but I remember being kind of like whoa A who is this person what were we expecting of her and then what the hell is going on is what I remember from this particular incident same how good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right? Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing, in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. 
All right, so I think the most important part of this is we spoke at the beginning about the every Demi album, henceforth, let's say, becomes this sort of here's who I really am album. And I think we really start this right at this moment. But I think what we also start here is every album is responsive to the latest event in my public narrative. Yeah. And that, I think, begins with her third album, which is 2011's Unbroken, which is led off by this single skyscraper. I think we should talk about this for a moment because this feels like an incredibly important moment in Demi's career, stardom, public persona, shaping, musical identity. How would you describe this song and how does it respond to what we had just learned about Demi through her treatment news? So Skyscraper is a very bombastic power ballady empowerment. You can try to tear me down, but I'll keep coming back stronger type of thing. Most importantly, I believe she didn't have any hand in the song writing at all. Mm-mm. So this is the perfect example of Demi Lovato kind of grabbing something by the horns and being like, this is my thing. I think most importantly is that the vocal performance was probably the first one that felt like the signature Demi Lovato vocals, which are very powerful, very intense, borderline screaming. Yes. <laughs> but you certainly can't accuse her of giving it 110%. Very raw. Yeah, raw, exactly. Go on and show- I think this was the first hit that I was aware of being beyond the Disney zone, especially since she left Sunny with a Chance and was kind of... Was she even on the Disney label at this point anymore? Yeah, she was, but she had left the show. Okay. Many of her records are released on Hollywood Records, interestingly, like through a lot of this period. But yes, she was on a co-deal with Hollywood and some other record label at this point. Okay. What I was surprised to hear, what I didn't realize until prepping for this, is she recorded this prior to entering Treatment. It's Mm. interesting because that becomes a motif actually that occurs on other Demi songs that are meant as responses to stories about her in the press about her struggles. Yeah. And she has since described this song as a quote unquote cry for Mm. help. And she does sound very wrenched. Yes. But what's interesting to me about that idea of this song sort of existing prior to the actual event or prior to her actually sort of being admitted into treatment is that it's not really about specifically her struggle. It's, again, that exact thing that I was sort of speaking about at the beginning, which is the story or the personality that's being imbued, the demi-specificity, is all meant to be conveyed through the vocal performance. Yes. And not necessarily through the song itself, which, as you mentioned, she doesn't have a a hand in writing. And the song is a song about persevering through adversity and coming out the other end stronger, which is like something we really also need to drill down on, I think, thematically here, because this is a trap that Demi Lovato lands in a lot. It's a really complicated part of her story to me. Again, pop stars responding or releasing music that is positioned as responding to personal travails and struggles is a tale as old as time and is an understandable impulse. We... As audiences want to feel authenticity from pop musicians and we want to feel like they're telling us their story and artists in time memoriam use their art as ways to express themselves and to deal with 
pain. Yeah. So I don't want to diminish that. But at the same time, I think there's this fine line that Demi walks. And I think some of this has to do with the fact that with how ongoing the struggles have been and how chronic they have been in her career. And we'll obviously be touching on that, that there is a really fine line between honesty and exploitation Mm. that I feel is something that haunts a lot of Demi's more here is my personal story music. There's parts of me that are like, I admire your bravery here. I admire how you're showing us your soul in pain here, again, mostly through the vocal performance here, which really does sound deeply pained. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this is coming out on Hollywood records. There is a feeling of how do we capitalize? And I'm not saying that's Demi's thing. I'm saying there's a borderline feeling of icky exploitation. How do we capitalize and how do we use this song to say she's fine now? Yes. And I think that that's one of the things that songs like this, which become a really big part of Demi's repertoire, are difficult for me to take at face value as honest and just sort of celebrate their honesty, I guess. Does that register? That registers and that feeds into what starts to characterize her adult career is the PR cycles influence the way people talk about the music. And then this album, Unbroken, becomes an album about overcoming whatever struggles she had. When if you actually look at the track list, there's really not that much that is specifically about any of that stuff. No, this song is a giant red herring for sure. Yeah, it's a lot of songs about, you know, having crushes on people and (laughs) romantic heartbreak. It's almost impressive in a way that she is able to, she and I'm guessing the team and the label are steering it toward that narrative. It kind of reminds me a little bit weirdly of Taylor Swift just did that big time magazine interview where she refers to Reputation as a goth punk album about getting gaslit by an entire social structure. And I'm like, that's not true. But the more she says it, the more that that's what people think it is. Right. I guess this might be the hallmark of especially like this 2011 at this point. Facebook is really settled in there. Twitter's on the come up. Instagram, I think, has just started in 2011. The age of social media where pop stars get to kind of express themselves and solidify their identity. I think this is the start of the parasocial pop moment. Yeah, totally. And I think Demi and whoever else was in charge were like, if we tell people this album is about this stuff, and especially, crucially, if we make a documentary for, I think it was MTV, about the release of it and about my rehab experience, then that's what people will think of as shorthand, even if the actual music isn't really like that at all. Right. And the entire idea of being unbroken. I mean, you were talking about the sort of rise of social media and pop stars expressing themselves. I'm also thinking of the rise of self-help social media culture, Mm -hmm. like sloganeering versions of self-love and self-care and all of that stuff, which feels very important. You're in the age of Gaga preaching self-love and acceptance and the things that other people in culture think are your weaknesses, are your strengths. And there's such a toxic notion to me of the idea of this record being called Unbroken. Yes. As if you're sort of putting the pressure on this young woman to have healed her trauma so that she can continue to march forward making money for Disney. I don't want to take away the agency. Like, I'm sure Demi on some level believed maybe that she had gone through the woods and was maybe through it. I don't know what her personal journey with it was. Pairing that with, as you mentioned, here you also have the first very sharp musical pivot because because outside of this song, this music not only is about meeting boys and sort of frivolous thematically, but it's a sonic and aesthetic shift completely away from rock for the most part yes. towards there's a Timberland produced dance track on here and there's blippy bloopy drum programming and Danity Kane meets Carrie Hilson sounding shit. I don't know who you- 
Let me just also say, for all of the rawness and authenticity that registers on Skyscraper, she is not good in that mode. No. Demi doing like lightweight, club, sexy, flirty Timberland songs, not a good combo. These songs were some of the worst that I listened to through this journey. Odd. Right? <laughs> Odd choices. I had written down Pussycat Dolls and Fergie, which again, <laughs> the theme here is that we're just a little late. Yeah. She was doing mid aughts right sexy right. almost like scott storch produced type of pop and i'm like we are so far beyond this we're in lady gaga meat dress mode like yes eccentrism exactly and kind of the auteur vibe right we're just pulling in people so late like we're pulling in missy elliott late how does she do that i know like it's missy elliott who i love but she picked her in maybe the only era that missy elliott is not relevant at all right i wrote this is like loose but five years too late i you know they forgot it It gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of the conversation, which is getting out of the sort of travails of Demi's personal life. She's not a big enough or fully embodied enough star to get the top tier song machine songs from these producers. Yes. These songs feel like songs that are not bespoke, are not made for her. They are songs that were written in a factory and then passed on by like six or seven pop stars that are bigger than Demi. That's what most of these songs feel like to me. And this is a problem that I come across in most of her middle period albums. There's this feeling of she's not getting the best shit because she's not the biggest pop star. And I think this is another thing we should sort of establish in this part of the conversation, which is Demi's continued B-list pop stardom. Yeah. Like, she's having hits, right? Skyscraper is a top 10 hit. This album is debuting, I think, at the top of the charts. She's definitely a star, and yet at the same time, and I remember it because I was very, very cognizant of pop at this moment, she never rises to that point of feeling like she's having a big breakthrough moment. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And she's never leading. It feels like she's catching up all the time. I think this extends to her next album. And again, these titles are funny because it all plays into this idea of here's the real me once again. The next album is 2013's Demi. <laughs> she literally is explicitly on this press tour. I was reading interviews from this time where she's like, this is the first album that feels like the real me. There was one quote I read that was so funny where she was like, I got really bored singing the other songs on tour because I was just kind of like, these songs don't really feel like me. And I just found like I was going out there every night and I was singing songs that didn't really feel like me. And this album, Demi, is the real me. So, but at the same time, while this next album reverts back maybe more towards some of the rock overtones of the early work, but also definitely still in kind of a synthetic pop mode or 80s pop mode, they don't feel any more bespoke or like her than any of the other songs feel. Yeah. Neon Lights is another one from that album that I'm just like, oh, yes, we are in the mode of kind of this throwing spaghetti at the wall process. When the song machine works, it works great. And then when it doesn't, it doesn't. I like really don't care. I 
I will say, unlike Unbroken, which overall not a good album yes. for me personally, yeah. Demi's got some of her first true real ass bangers. Sometimes the song machine just fucking slams and goes into full effect. And that happens to me on a couple of these songs. Yeah. Most notably on the lead single, Heart Attack, which on some days may be my favorite Demi song. Just an absolute power pop slammer kind of cleverly written mm -hmm. this song has a higher tier of songwriting than some of the more generic songs self-lacerating biting has a sense of attitude yeah i love the conceit of the song of being like if i ever did anything good for myself i'd probably die or something like that <laughs> you know what i mean you make me She does bruised well, mm -hmm. and I definitely think songs like this capture that trait effectively, while also just being fucking slammer. This song has an amazing chorus. Yeah, and then takes advantage of, if we're trying to figure out where Demi is different than her peers, it is that she has this powerhouse voice Yes, that... No offense to Selena Gomez, but Selena Gomez has never been known as someone who is like a belting, screaming person. So no. <laughs> used well, it works great. But yeah, it just always feels a little bit behind when I was doing a little bit of research before this podcast. In addition to Heart Attack being a American Idol contestant cast off, it had originally a dubstep breakdown that they removed, <laughs> which I'm like, at least they had Thank the God. good sense to do Thank that. God. And I love a good dubstep <sighs> breakdown, but that would have been too much for just buying into whatever the trends are. Again, late. I think it would have been late. It was like two yes. years late for the dubstep yeah. breakdown. Yeah, we were already post-Britney doing the dubstep breakdown. The problem with Demi is that she makes these documentaries that show a certain slice of her life. But I want to see her banging her head against the wall in the recording studio being like, is this the best you guys have? Yeah. What is on the menu? Or was she just like, yes, this is fine. Thank you, sir. May I have another? I don't know. But it can't be exciting to see what she was offered by these Swedish and Norwegian and generic American people. Yeah, it's really hard to know. I wish I had some insight into whether this was her leading and steering the ship or if it wasn't. But from what I understand, at least, I don't know if she said it directly, but from her constant sort of this is the real me postures that she's made throughout her career, my sense is that she must not have felt like she had a huge hand in this stuff. Yeah. I don't know if she's spoken at length about exactly how these albums came together, per se. And they're all posited as as real. Yes. That's the thing that's so toxic. <laughs> about their presentations. They're all posited as, here's an artist expressing herself, and yet at the same time, every time we're a year removed from the album, the artist themselves is going like, that had nothing to do with me, really, <laughs> like, at the end of the day. So it's this really toxic thing. Oh, you know, one song we didn't talk about from this era that I think also stands above some of the others is Give Your Heart a Break, the number 16 peaking song from Unbroken. That kind of sounds like Viva La Vida a little bit. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, yes. It's very middle of the road, but effective middle of the road. Yeah. And good singing. She really rips on that bridge. With Demi's voice, either you want her to be screaming or you don't want her to be screaming. And kind of the song is good on whether you want that or not because she'll be screaming no matter what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> she will be going full blast through the entire song. Yes. Either the song asks for that and then works better or you're like, 
Ah, stop screaming. <laughs> Listening to the entire discography, more or less, back to back, I was like, boy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Headache. It was hard. It was really rough. All right. So we have these two records. They both do kind of like maintenance. That's what I feel like. Demi continues to be a present pop star. I think at this point, we can safely say that you and I as adult human beings are aware of Demi, but yet... Once again, there's never a moment of breakthrough. There's never that moment where it's like Demi Lovato's music <laughs> is consuming the conversation. Demi Lovato's music is setting some sort of tone. Demi Lovato is having a string of big hits. Like the hits always feel secondary. Even like a big hit like Heart Attack. Heart Attack doesn't feel like, you know, what's a big hit of 2013. We can't stop or Wrecking Ball, right? Yes. I mean, that's the other thing is that, again, if you're comparing her to her peers, my Miley's coming off this incredible run where she does get the can't be tamed moment where she's like, I am sexy now. The fact that Demi comes out the same year as Bangers, that's crazy to me. I know. Say what you want about Miley Cyrus. And obviously there are some conversations <laughs> to be had that you have probably already had sure. about her relationship with hip hop and with yes. black music. <laughs> we have indeed. But at least she was leading a certain charge. Oh, that album, talk about bespoke. I mean, yeah. that album was only going to be made by Miley. Miley Cyrus at that exact moment for all of its gaudy nastiness. And I like bangers a lot. Yeah. And she devoured culture. That moment was the moment exactly that I'm talking about here that Demi has never had. Yes. Where it was like, for better or worse, Miley Cyrus was the center of popular culture for 2013. Yeah. That was all we talked about. And the music was there. We Can't Stop, Wrecking Ball. Those songs define that moment in pop and endure to this day as some of the biggest hits of the decade. It's just like Demi just never for a sense that moment. I mean, even Selena, again, more parallel to Demi in the sense of always kind of being omnipresent, especially prior to like her sort of revival era. But they don't ever ascend out of like the B squad. It's like minor league pop stardom. Yes. And at a time when you really did need to be major, I feel like now we're kind of in an interesting time. Yeah, right. Because we still had monoculture at this time, right? Yes. You still needed to make a splash on MTV or at the VMAs or what have you. Now right. it's an interesting time where I do feel like there is the pop middle class right. that it's kind of unclear who's going to pop from that. But right. yeah, this was a time of superstars and you could not really put Demi quite in that conversation. No, for sure. So she follows up this run of albums quickly with an appearance on The X Factor. I think many people forget that she was one of the judges on the panel with Britney herself, Disney generations coming together. <laughs> I never really watched this, but I do kind of remember where Britney was sort of disengaged I kind of remember Demi being like a very sweet, engaged, nurturing, constructive presence as a judge. Yeah. I want to start. I want to start. Okay. I just want to tell you, I have the chills like all up and down my legs because not only are you talented, but you're so down to earth. You were like freaking out in the middle of the lines and you were just like, I could, you're so excited. I'm excited. I'm totally. rooting for you. You're so cute together. I didn't watch this season, although was Fifth Harmony on this season, but did not win. Yes. No, they did not win. Yes. Which is interesting in and of itself. I remember a lot of reaction gifts of Britney Spears being slightly checked out of whatever was going on. And yeah, I think that probably overshadowed the Demi presence, which I think the other thing to note there is that apparently during The X Factor, she had come out of rehab and was living in a sober living facility and like had... Oh, she had gone to rehab again. Yes. I think she did two bouts of it. And maybe this reflected it that she was in a 
point in her career where she did seem like she was maybe putting in some of the work to try to stay sober and to start a new leaf, which it's kind of crazy to think of Debbie doing all of these things and then has to wash dishes in like a <laughs> like a roommate situation. But yeah, this is also the moment in which yet another just eye roll to the back of my head slash so toxicly titled documentary called Demi Lovato Stay Strong comes out. God, yeah. When I first started in the industry, I was with Disney Channel and everyone kind of just made me a role model. And I hated that. Disney star Demi Lovato now in rehab. 18-year-old was on the international leg of her tour when she made I had so many issues underneath that needed to be taken care of. I battled depression. I developed an immune disorder. Anorexia, bulimia. I cut myself. There was never a period of time where I ever felt good enough. I was partying, self-medicating. I felt like I was living a lie. I thought, there's no way that I'm going to get better. It's just unreal looking back at this. I want to understand how much of this was her idea and how much of this was being placed on her. This whole thing about you have to tell everybody that you're over this. You have healed yourself. That is the part of this whole story that makes it so unsavory to me. Every moment that Demi has what seems like a very, very wrenching, difficult, clearly this girl was struggling a lot, a lot. That's her words. She's told us about the struggles. I mean, yeah. Every minute she's coming back from really difficult low points and then just putting on a face and putting out an album. And we know that she was not in good shape through most of this time period. And everything is titled and framed around the idea that that was the last time that's going to happen. Demi's back. Demi's good. Don't worry about her. She's still here to make music and go on tour. It's nauseating. Yeah, it's pretty evil. That Stay Strong documentary where she goes back to her old rehab and speaks to some of the young women that are there. These are just fascinating artifacts to me because you can see in her eyes and what she says that she's not about it. No. She says to these women, she's like, I thought the doctors here were evil and I hated being here. I'm like, yeah. like, whoa, you could not see that she was committed to anything that she was saying and that she was probably being told to say. Yes. I think when you're a child starts, like, do you even know what's your choice and not? Yeah. This is something that I've come across a lot in thinking about Britney's journey. I have found myself with the impulse to time to say to Demi, do you know you don't actually have to like excavate your pain for public consumption? If you want to, and that is healing for you, great. But are you aware that you do not have to keep doing that? Yeah. That's a feeling that I think builds increasingly through these stints of rehab and then the sort of response to the stints of rehabs in the music. Because I can see how you wouldn't know that. Yeah. I can see how you might not know that you don't have to then turn that into pop music yes. <laughs> like for people to consume or documentaries about it for people to consume. She might not know that, but uh, it's hard to say at this moment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it definitely provides the narrative arc for something, but the more you do it, then the more people expect you to keep having things to say yes. about it when you might not, and then your heart's not in it, and then everyone can tell, and it's a whole it's a whole thing. A whole thing. All right. So I feel like 2015's Confident, which is Demi's fifth album, is probably like the most important in her I'm a grown-up now, this is the real me albums to this point. Mm-hmm. And maybe the most 
effective question mark i don't know let's talk about it yeah what is this album like what does it sound like in contrast to the music that's come before it how does this once again reimagine demi lovato as an on-record presence and aesthetically in terms of what kind of music she's making i feel like this is her belated i'm sexy now record in a way (laughs) that the other ones weren't which again just feels it's just late. Everyone else has already gone there and, and come right back. <laughs> like, how old is too old to do I'm Sexy Now? I literally am like, when was Demi Lovato born? Wait, so she's 23. <laughs> so we're really late on the I'm Sexy Now album at this point. We're a little late. But that being said, I do feel like, especially the singles, is where the persona lines up, however briefly, her attitude and the aesthetic of the songs. Cool for the Summer is my favorite Demi Lovato song. Yes. I just feel like it works on so many levels because it pulls in that little rock motif. It's got the distorted guitars and again, talk about being slightly late, the soft bisexual song, (laughs) like however many years after I kissed a girl. (gasps) Demi needs an album called Better Late Than Never. (laughs) Oh my God. That would be my next (laughs) suggestion for her. And in conversation with I Kissed a Girl, I think most importantly, this is the one moment maybe ever in her career where she gets to work with the top shelf pop team. Again, how did this have like what email needed to get sent or favor needed to get done (laughs) to get the Max Martin, to get the Stargate? We've arrived. Yeah. What is that? I do wonder why this is the moment where she finally gets that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, we're still on Hollywood records here. Mm -hmm. Is it because she has so much fame from the public narrative at this point? People are realizing that there is interest and if the music could at some point match up to the level of interest in the public narrative, perhaps there could be a massive breakthrough. Yeah. But yeah, we get Max Martin here. I mean, this is the moment where Demi crosses paths with the premier hitmaker of the century, the one and only time, really, that she has that opportunity on both Cool for the Summer, which, as you said, is like her soft bisexuality launch, <laughs> and in conversation with Max Martin's classic soft bisexuality launch of I Kissed a Girl, yeah. has some interesting sort of vibes on bisexuality being a secretive thing that we can't tell our mothers and yeah. all of that fun stuff. 2015 feels 300 years ago at this point in terms of our social and cultural attitudes towards many things. Yes. But agree, total slammer, still sounds great. If you want a song that speaks to why Max Martin is better than everybody else and like why he matters, just listen to Cool for the Summer Mm -hmm. in contrast to all of Demi Lovato's music before Cool for the Summer. This song (laughs) bangs, like it's so fucking good. And he also produces the other single from this record, Confident, which again feels in conversation with I Kissed a Girl in the sense that it sounds like Gary Glitter and it sounds like Personal Jesus a little bit, Mm -hmm. maybe Black Skin head a little bit as well (laughs) oh god i forgot about that moment yes kind of could have been a britney song Mm -hmm. super attitude-y I wonder how would you describe her attitude on these songs? I mean, you described her being more attitude aligned on this. Like, what is Demi's attitude on Confident and Cool for the Summer, you think? It seems like she's finally maybe let go of the this is me. I'm shy, but I'm finally coming into my own. Right. It's a 
fine line, but it's not empowerment core. There's a difference between singing a song that is like, I am empowered and just singing an empowered song. And I feel like she's doing the latter on this where she just sounds more naturally confident, literally, Mm. in herself. It does lean a little bit toward, again, she's got this taste for bombast, which I think is just her voice. Right. These songs are as bombastic as she's singing. Yeah. I guess I should think about it more in context of it's 2015. We're building up the Hillary Clinton campaign. Right. It's kind of the last gasp of unadulterated feminism that just got retread in Barbie, weirdly. Right. It's like pure girl power as opposed to, oh, wait a second, we need to get a little more intersectional or we need to get a little more just beyond straight white identity. So I should put it in that context as something like Lionheart or Kingdom Come. These epic lady songs, gladiatorial type of thing. (laughs) I had written down this album feels the closest to Katy Perry to me. And I think that's probably because of the Max Martin element. It was Katy Perry at probably the last time that Katy Perry was cool or hot, I would say. Yes. This is moments before Witness, right? Yes. Mere seconds before Witness. (laughs) Seconds before Witness. But this is definitely uncomplicated mid-decade pop feminism, for sure. And fun. I think that's the other thing that we sort of have not totally touched on. Cool for the Summer and Confident, they're fun songs. It's not about excavating pain. It's not about trying to find rock edge or the approximation of rock edge. They just are fun, freewheeling, attitude-y pop songs, which is a nice thing to experience. It's relaxing. I think that the problem here is that this album needed like seven more Max Martin songs. (laughs) Yes. I think to your point, Demi does not do subtlety. No. Subtlety is literally her least strong suit in my opinion. Yeah. So like the songs have to match up to that lack of subtlety. When Demi tries for subtlety, it doesn't feel subtle. It's like a very strange thing. And I think a lot of the rest of this album needs more of the bombast of the two Max Martin songs. We get into some Sia sounding songs like Waiting For You or songs that sort of made me wonder, could Demi have crushed Chandelier? Yeah. Right? That's a great question. Chandelier is a great example of a song that marries the bombast of like a Max Martin song and the kind of nuanced take on struggle with addiction that Demi just can never muster. That is a level of threading the needle in a pop song that Demi Lovato just does not have the capacity to pull off. We'll talk about this with her last albums, I'm sure. But it is just so funny that, yeah, the subtlety is a thing. You know, how can I put all the struggles that I've dealt with, with substances and vices and all this stuff? How about dancing with the It's always the first choice and most baseline. Most obvious. Yeah. Cliche to a certain point. Yes. Even like what's wrong with being confident. I mean, the song's about confidence and it's called confident. And then the album's called confident. Like it's like, okay. Yes. All right. So that's confident. As the Demi narrative goes, this album is a success and yet not a huge success. Cool for the Summer peaks at number 11. Mm -hmm. Not even Max Martin can get this girl to the top five of the fucking Billboard Hot 100. And Confident goes to number 21. The album sells kind of similarly to her records to this point. Yeah. And then we can move on, I think, to the last album that sort of precedes Demi's latest overhaul reinvention personal narrative struggle, which is 2017's Tell Me You Love Me, Mm -hmm. my favorite Demi Lovato album, I would say. Yeah. Again, a massive stylistic change in approach. Here we are going for kind of like soul 
R&B vibes, which I actually think is like a pretty good place for Demi to go. This is, of course, led off by the biggest hit of Demi's career, Sorry Not Sorry, which is essentially like a trap gospel anthem, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Banger, kind of a bombastic kiss-off anthem. I mean, it's exactly what you'd think a song called Sorry Not Sorry would sound like. I like it very much. It forged the path for one of my favorite RuPaul's Drag Race lip syncs of all time. Yes, of course. That's honestly how I mostly think about it now. Isn't that so Demi that even her biggest hit is eclipsed by somebody else's interfacing with it? It's not even about her. Oh my God. Yeah, I love that. I like the title track a lot. I honestly think that Gospel Soul, is it's a risk just sounding corny sometimes especially if that's not necessarily your singing background or your even religious background, let's say that. Sure. I think Tell Me You Love Me might be in my top five Demi's. Great. Again, using her power for good and not for evil. Oh, tell me you love me. I need someone on days like this. I do on days like this. Oh, can you hear my heart? She rips on this song and this song needs someone to rip on it. And you know what? I was thinking with this, it needs desperation and brokenness and Demi's got that. Yeah. Demi's got <laughs> desperation and brokenness. When the song asks for that, she can really deliver that and you really feel her authenticity. I mean, we've ragged on her a little bit, but I think one of Demi's real strong suits is she feels earnest all the time. Yes. Demi is really giving it. Whether you like what she's giving or not is a different story, but it doesn't feel put on. When she gets into a song where she's excavating her soul, it feels not like an act. It feels like she is 100% using the song as an opportunity to bear her soul to you. Mm -hmm. That's to her immense credit. I really do appreciate that. And she does have the vocal power to back that up. And I think Tell Me You Love Me, the song is a great representation of that. But I happen to find a lot of these songs way more clever and bespoke than most of the songs in her discography. Mm -hmm. There's an incredible song that I think is just hilarious and self-lacerating and commentating on her narrative in a way that doesn't feel maudlin for maybe the first time ever in Daddy Issues, which is yes. this incredibly bombastic screamer. I mean, a real screamer. I mean, this is Demi in full-on lung explosion mode. But the whole <laughs> conceit of the song is, aren't you lucky that you met me and you're going to get to like date me because I have so many daddy issues that I'm going to basically forgive all of your sins. Yeah. And that is such a funny way to warp in this narrative of her as this damaged bird and make it fun. Make it sound like she's in control of the narrative, that it's not exploitative. It feels like she's having fun with that story. And it's like one of the only times in her discography that I ever feel that way. Yeah. Or even on Ruin the Friendship, which is another song about self-destruction or making like the bad choice, but making it sound kind of fun. Demi needs these songs so badly because it makes her sound in control. It makes her sound like she has a sense of humor in a way that some of the other ways she approaches her narrative in songs really just do not. Yes, I agree. Your body's looking good tonight. I'm thinking we should cross the line. Let's ruin the friendship. Let's ruin the friendship. 
And she also on this album does calm down a little bit. Yes, right. Ruin the Friendship is a little more calm. Yeah. Only Forever is a little more calm. Yeah, not screaming. Not screaming. Only Forever, I was like, oh my God, I feel like she finally kind of bit off the Selena Gomez style vocals of just chilling out a little bit, which is good to do every now and then. Yes. Only a little more restrained singing. It's one of the real gifts of this set of songs to me. I mean, Cry Baby is almost like a Lana vibe to mm. it. You definitely feel a little bit of influence of alt R&B too. Like I felt Kehlani on games, that kind of 2010s version of late 90s R&B that Kehlani or Sid the Kid were kind of doing in this particular period. Yeah. And then I think, I don't know if this is the first time that she has worked with Oak Felder. Yes, right. But she works with him quite a bit more going forward. Right. And I do think it's interesting that I think his notable prior credits was working with Alessia Cara. Mm. who was almost coming out as the kind of rebellious teen image without the Disney vibe that Demi Lovato maybe found a little bit familiar. Totally. Although Alessia Cara's big song is that she doesn't like to party and she doesn't want to go to the party and she wants to go home. Right. But at least aesthetically is something that Demi could have really killed. Yeah. She really could have sung that song too. Here would have been a great Demi song. This is, for my money, the best record Demi Lovato ever made. Yeah. The only one I've really ever cared for as a body of work outside of the singles, I think. So, as the story goes, this is the last moment before Demi has perhaps her most notable and troubling public narrative event. Mm -hmm. In 2018, she experiences an overdose on heroin? Yeah, I think it's heroin that had fentanyl all in it so so how does this all come to light and like what is the overarching story of this very tragic moment in Demi's story yeah at this point kind of coming out from that moment in 2010 where she has this incident with the backup dancer and she goes to rehab she is for all intents and purposes sober to the public right and has been for I think it's supposed to be like six years at that point right and it's pointed out in the documentary that they end up releasing about this moment that she fell off the wagon as they say, started drinking again and then kind of immediately went from drinking to using harder drugs than she had ever used in her life. And I think it's described that the time period between being completely sober and this is like a couple of months. Right. So yeah. I think when this news came out, because I think I probably saw it via TMZ or something, Demi Lovato has an overdose and needs to go to the hospital and almost died. It was, I think, a big surprise for everyone because I think the image that had been put forth was that she was not necessarily squeaky clean anymore, but that she was sober and that was part of her. Did the single sober actually come out before? Yes. Yeah. So again, it's this kind of weird moment where the timing of what she's putting out in the world doesn't align with what is actually happening internally. Well, isn't sober though about her not being sober? Yes. Mama, I'm so sorry I'm not sober anymore. Daddy, please forgive me Sober anymore. 
But yeah, this is a big deal, obviously. And she almost dies. She, I think, sustains brain damage in the aftermath of this. Yes. And vision damage, hearing damage. Yeah. Truly harrowing story that we know a lot about because, of course, in classic Demi fashion, there's a documentary that is released in tandem with the next record we'll be speaking about called Dancing with the Devil, both the album and documentary, where she once again kind of brutally, honestly chronicles this thing for you. I had a photo shoot and I remember being at the photo shoot and just thinking to myself, like, I don't even know why I'm sober anymore. Like, I am so miserable. Um, I'm not happy. I have all this stuff that I'm dealing with. I picked up a bottle of red wine that night and it wasn't even 30 minutes before I called someone that I knew had drugs on them. I'm surprised I didn't OD that night. I ended up at a party. I just so happened to run into my old drug dealer from six years before. And like the odds of that happening was crazy. And he like had a duffel bag and I just went to town. I went on a shopping spree. That night I did drugs that I'd never done before. I'd never done meth before. I tried meth. I mixed it with Molly, with Coke, weed, alcohol, Oxycontin. And like that alone should have killed me. It's the perfect moment of sort of encapsulating the idea I put forth earlier of what is the line between sharing, inspiring, the truth being something that helps other people see themselves, and exploitation. It's such a difficult part of Demi's entire career and oeuvre to me. I remember watching that documentary where she was explaining this. And in this documentary, she famously talks about being quote unquote, California sober, i.e. that she's made the decision that complete and utter sobriety is not the path for her and that she moderately uses mm -hmm. alcohol and marijuana, essentially. And I just remember being like, why are you telling everybody this? Mm -hmm. I'm not even making a judgment call on what the right decision for her would have been. And of course, she eventually reneged on the California sobriety and now claims that she's entirely sober. But I just remember watching this and I was like, do you have to do this? Do you have to not only release an album, which we're going to talk about momentarily, that is explicitly about this experience and a music video that literally chronicles your experience overdosing? Mm -hmm. And then a six-part documentary, do you have to? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because at this point, we're deep enough into her career. This is a person that's nearing 30 years old. I'm getting the, the idea that she is making these decisions. And maybe, as I mentioned earlier, she doesn't know that she doesn't have to. Or maybe she really does feel strongly that this is how she deals with her pain is by expressing it in public. But this moment in particular feels the most uncomfortable to me on that front. I had the exact same reaction when that documentary came out, Dancing with the Devil, which shares the name with the album. Or I guess the album is called Dancing with the Devil, The Art of Starting Over. Yes. Which again, it's just that these have to be linked and that she has to make some kind of statement and give the sense of vulnerability beyond the album itself, which we'll talk about it. Again, it's an album that, though she says it's about recovery and her hellacious experiences, it's actually weirdly not that much about it. Right. And the documentary is what it's about it. And this is when I think we really get into that spiral of every time that you have created a piece of art that you say is the real you and the authentic you, and this time I'm not lying, and then you come back the next time and that you say, actually, I wasn't being honest. That doesn't help your case in a very still judgmental public. Totally. And I think only getting more and more judgmental and there's less and less room for nuance right people love a redemption story and i think increasingly especially now with you know the kind of radical honesty of gen z coming up is sure people are okay with seeing someone in the middle of a crisis as opposed to the end but i feel like her and her team it is this obsession with now i'm fine and now it's over and i'm like yes. i don't believe you 
anymore. And that sucks that I don't believe you. And nor should you feel obligated to be fine or <laughs> yes. to be over it. I mean, this is the most destructive part of the whole demi cycle that we've been on for this whole journey, which is these are very difficult issues. Being abandoned, as she's talked about by her father, the physical and emotional abuse she suffered, whatever she's been through, drug addiction, mm -hmm. alcohol addiction, eating disorders. I mean, one thing she chronicles very, very harrowingly in this documentary is the way that Disney and her management and all these people tried to make her be skinny as a young teenager, locking her in her hotel room, not letting her eat what she wanted to or eat a normal amount of food, giving her a birthday cake, which she chronicles on the album in a song called Melon, where instead of getting a birthday cake for her birthday, she would just get a melon with non-fat whipped cream on it God. as a replacement birthday cake so that she wouldn't eat sugar or whatever. These are deeply traumatizing and upsetting things for anybody to experience, especially in the spotlight. So like the idea of this constant idea that she's fine or there's redemption or she's overcome, these are toxic ideas in anybody's personal life, I think, and also to have to say to the public and the trap that she has continually gotten herself into that just is so sad. I just feel so badly for her that she feels inclined to have to perform healing for everybody all the time. Yeah, I think it's good for no one, including her. And I mean, even the fact that Dancing with the Devil, that they show at the beginning of that, that they were filming a different documentary that got scrapped when she overdosed. And I'm just like, so you just have kind of cameras on you all the time and you're performing? <laughs> Nonstop documentary, yeah. That is not healthy. No. I don't think that's a good idea. And certainly I don't think anyone is screaming out for it. I don't think anyone is clamoring for it. No. And to be not only just talking about it, but she comes back and in the most predictable way possible, the song that sort of leads this whole thing off is this song, Anyone, which is in the style of Skyscraper, but even more so, just this ultra-wrenching, pained ballad that she apparently wrote days before the overdose, just a song of sheer desperation and really, again, so earnestly come by. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a very, very, very personal song. We can talk about whether we like this as a song in and of itself. It's not my personal favorite song, but she literally says the lyrics, I confided in alcohol. The song is literally in classic Demi unsubtle fashion, crying out to be heard, to be seen, to be helped. She's looking for help. It's one of those things where it's like, should I be looking at this? This is so diaristic. It's so personal in both lyric and performance that it almost feels wrong to share in a way. That's my reaction to this song. It's like, I want to admire it. And yet I feel like it's misguided as a public artifact. I talk to shooting stars, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray. So why am I praying anyway? If nobody's listening, anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. Oh. The only thing I can think of that might be making Demi think that this is a good idea is that I do think one of the singers that looms kind of over her career is Amy Winehouse, mm. who is, you know, had indie cred that Demi could never dream of in terms of not having to come up through the Disney machine. And being like a generational songwriter. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so I wonder if it's a sense of like, well, you know, you had Amy Winehouse making a song called They Try to Make Me Go to Rehab. And I said, no, when that really was happening at that time, and people were in real time watching her 
have these struggles. But I guess the difference is that Amy Winehouse never pretended to have overcome it. Right. Like her whole thing was, I'm never going to overcome this. That was kind of the whole yeah. troubling but fascinating conceit of Back to Black. It's this weird mental state that has to, I think, be brought on by the Disney overlords still kind of looming over everything that you have to have everything all buttoned up and present your pain as if it has happened in the recent but final past when A, that doesn't have to be true and B, I just don't think anyone even buys it at that point. You know what else I thought about with anyone was the Kesha song Praying. Like, I feel like these songs exist on a continuum too. I mean, Kesha also, you know, a different sort of travail, but something where it was like, the music has to address this. We have to have the moment of wrenching balladry to sort of feel whole as a culture about this pop star's public journey being reflected in the music. It really reminded me of that. And they had similar debut performances or important performances like at a big award show and they're crying their way through it. And it is inspirational. I mean, look, I don't want to say that it's not amazing to stand in your truth on a stage and to share this incredibly personal thing with the world. But I just think with Demi, at this point, it's just scary. Like, I feel scared for her is the overarching feeling that I have yeah. in this portion of her career. It's the wrong type of parasocial where it's the parasocial where you're like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, are you okay? A hundred percent. And like, what are you setting yourself up for? So the other obviously important narrative moment here is that she comes out as non-binary. Obviously at the time she goes by they, them pronouns. We've been referring to her as she, her because she has since said that she's she, her, yeah. they, them and releases this record as you mentioned, Dancing with the Devil, dot, 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 The Art of Letting Go, very much in the tradition of the Me, I Am Mariah, the elusive Chanteuse titling of <laughs> albums. I had never listened to this record in full, I think because of how I felt about anyone in the documentary. I was kind of like, I don't know if I need this in my life. So I listened to it for the first time preparing for this. Anything notable you want to say about this on a musical aesthetic level, even if it's not about how it's responsive to her public narrative? You know, it certainly doesn't have the kind of unified aesthetic that worked so much better in prior albums. At this point the story is the music and the music itself is not the music totally and then it's kind of bloated it's 19 tracks and yeah. it's got these what i would just describe as distractions honestly from the thesis which yes you've got anyone you've got dancing with the devil which has lyrics about her smoking crack which is obviously yeah. again so far from where she came from as that initial innocent image right it's just a little white line And at least bespoke lyrically, like at least the pain here is being vesseled in songs that are clearly written about and for Demi as opposed to like a skyscraper. Yes. But I would call the theme just a little confused. We've got the song Dancing with the Devil where the devil is this persistent trend toward addiction and self-destruction. But then there's Met Him Last Night, which is a song with Ariana Grande where it's just like, the devil is a sexy guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, which is it? We're mixing metaphors here. I think the reason someone like Olivia Rodrigo does so well now is that her albums are shorter and they're more thematically concise and 
people are simple. You need kind of one idea. And so when Demi Lovato puts out an album that she says is about her latest recovery, and then there's just sprinkled in, like the song, The Way You Don't Look At Me is a song about how heartbreak is worse than almost dying. And I'm like, I would write a song about how almost dying is pretty damn bad. She doesn't have to take advice from me, but it's just a little muddled. I would describe the album as thematically, aesthetically muddled when it probably shouldn't have been. I think that's so true. And I just want to quote Quinn Moreland in Pitchfork, who's referred to it as sidelining Demi Lovato the artist and showcasing Demi Lovato the person. Mm. This music isn't here to exist as music. It's just here to exist as an extension of the story or something. Yeah. It's a very strange album. And I think it's definitely no fun, which maybe it shouldn't need to be but that definitely was part of what made tell me you love me like work well it doesn't have any hits and i think what's interesting about it more than the music itself to me is as the personal narrative of demi lovato crescendos with this event the music becomes so perfunctory yeah this album made very very little splash her least successful album to this point no hit songs it's just interesting in just speaking about how we will think of and remember demi lovato that none of what went on with her and how much press coverage that got and how much of a big deal that was and how much the any one performance was this big thing generated a ton of heat around this album it just speaks to the broader disconnect i think about the demi lovato pop career in a sense yeah people don't care that much about her music it's not a thing that the general public is that engaged with outside of whether she can find the hit here and there which she has yes for the most part but not recently so the most recent development in demiville is that her career i guess has weirdly come full circle in the last couple of years where she has rebranded, recircled back to rock music on her most recent album, which is 2022's Holy Fuck. And then this 2023 compilation of re-records of all of her biggest hits in rock style on 2023's Revamped. These albums, especially Holy Fuck, both of them were not commercially successful. No. But Holy Fuck, I think, got some of the best critical notices of her career. I hadn't listened to it again until prepping for this. I'm curious what you think about Demi's return to her hard rock edges or perhaps actually making good on the poses of hard rock edges that were presented about her early in her career lately. I have complicated feeling. I have uh, simply complicated feelings about <laughs> Holy Fuck and about the rock re-records. I love it and hate it. On one hand, And I think it does feel true to her and it feels true to her voice. And it seems to energize her. It feels much more consistent with what she might actually want to do in comparison to these kind of half-baked previous concepts. Sure. But I'm stuck on the production, the Mm. actual rockness of it. Mm. It's like she cannot break out of rock with a pop sheen on it or just really, really overproduced. Some of this stuff just sounds not even dated. It just doesn't even sound like it at any point has been popular. Like she had not on Holy Fuck, but on the rock re-records, she had Slash on there. I was like, where is Slash? Like, I'm not even getting Slash. I want to like it so bad. And I think some like Holy Fuck had the song 29, which I actually think is really great. Yes. One of her best songs. Yeah. Great songwriting actually brings, you know, her life story in a musical way that feels like I actually want to listen to it a little bit. Right. And not repelling the audience. And clever. Yeah, and clever.
yeah, I have complicated feelings because I think it's better than anything that she's done in a while. But I still feel like she just has, unfortunately, I have to compare it to the Halsey hard rock turn. I uh, I had that in my notes as well. The yeah. Trent Reznor Halsey album, yeah. If I Can't Have Love, I Want Power, which it was produced by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross from Nine Inch Nails and all these amazing soundtracks that they do together. The production is just not quite matching what I think she could do. And when she does work with these really, really A-list people, they bring out the best in her. But I don't know. It did not quite hit for me. That's my long spiel about Holy Fuck and the Rock re-recordings. Yeah, I largely mirror your sentiments on it. I mean, I think 29 is really, really good. And we didn't even talk about the kind of Wilbur Valderrama part of this whole story, which is what that song is responsive to, which is Demi at age 17 or 18 was dating a 29, 30-year-old Wilbur Valderrama. And this song flips the script on that, calls him out. The idea is now she's 29 and she can't imagine how he dated her at that age. Yeah. That's a clever idea for a song. Really Mm -hmm. one of her smartest. You know what? The other album that it made me think of, weirdly enough, just wrapping it into the Disney world is Miley Cyrus's Plastic Hearts, which is another album that pivots towards rock, but does so with pop producers and Mm -hmm. feels like an approximation of actual rock music more so than rock music itself. Yes. And again, I guess I still feel, even though the attitude about Demi's public narrative is funnier and more lighthearted here, like on Freak, the opening song, she's singing about get your tickets to the Freak Show, baby, you know, i.e. my life. Came for the trauma, stayed for the drama is a lyric. Yeah. Skin of My Teeth has lyrics that literally say Demi leaves rehab again. When is this shit gonna end? Sounds like the voice in my head. I can't believe I'm not dead. A lot of death imagery on this song. Substance says don't want to end up in a casket, mm-hmm. etc. It's this really strange feeling. It's like there's so much earnest. Like, I really believe that she believes each of these guys is getting closer to her real self. And yet I don't feel like we've ever quite found that musically. I don't feel like we've ever landed on the thing where I'm like, this is who Demi is. <laughs> the irony of this artist constantly <laughs> telling us this is the real her. Yeah. And just as a observer, a critic, a music consumer, none of her music has ever felt like we have found that center. And yeah. this is maybe one of her more fun attempts. I like the idea of her going for this. It's brazen. It's bold in certain aspects. And I like that idea. But again, I just don't feel like we're there. And I don't know that we're ever getting there. Maybe the point of this conversation as we sort of wrap things up here is maybe Demi's story and her earnest search for her real self on music is the story here. Yes. More so than landing on the identity, if that makes sense. Yes. That was basically my conclusion. But you know what I was thinking weirdly is that I do wonder if sometimes Demi Lovato wakes up in the morning and is like, there was a parallel universe where I was Haley Williams in Paramore. And instead of like <laughs> getting crunched through the Disney sausage grinder, I just started a band and I had this big voice and I pick one aesthetic and just stuck with it and wrote it through a more natural, you know, there's only one Haley Williams and there's only one Paramore, but... A hundred percent. But that's what Revamped is attempting to tell us. Yeah. Imagine if all of my music sounded like holy fuck. Yes. I guess that's just the problem is that when you keep pointing at something and being like, now this is my authentic self, it's like, the funniest thing that she could do is just put out an album that maybe a hyper pop album. Right. Just something that's so chaotic that has no musical identity whatsoever. Right. Has a polka song on it and she's just like, I have no idea what's going on anymore. Like a Nicki Minaj album, basically. (laughs) Yes. 
exactly. That would be my career advice for Demi at this point. Yeah, I like that. More fun. What I will say about Holy Fuck is she does sound like she's having fun. And I really do appreciate that. While she sort of flails around, at least if she's sort of having fun with it, then I can have fun with her. Yes. And I think that's what some of her best music has shown. Does Demi Lovato have a legacy to speak of? Do we see the impact of Demi Lovato? This person has been in pop music, relevant to some degree for the last almost 15 years. Is there a long tail of Demi Lovato in pop stardom and pop music in your mind? I think the long tail is going to be people existing in opposition to Demi Lovato, which I think you could look at like a Billie Eilish, an Olivia Rodrigo. Right. You know, we had the first generation of Disney pop stars who dealt with their own struggles. We had the second generation that have dealt with their own struggles in different ways. I think the legacy is people being like, I can't get trapped in this machine. I can't get trapped in this continuous cycle of reinventing, but not reinventing at all. And so you have Billie Eilish basically only working with her brother, Olivia Rodrigo only working with, what is her producer's name? Dan Nigro. Yes. Much more of like an auteur simplification, Mm -hmm. which is existing in the opposition of Demi as maybe the last gasp of this version of the song machine, which is that people might not want to hear this grab bag of second and third tier songwriter produced things. It's kind of weird to say that I think people will probably learn from Demi's mistakes and that might be the legacy. Totally. That being said, I don't think she's done and I'm still softly curious about what she would do next at this point because she's done a lot (laughs) and she's only 31 at this point. So there's more acts to do. A hundred percent and concur on all of it. And if anything, I have wondered throughout listening to this music prepping for this. I bet you Demi Lovato would have loved to have made a sour or a guts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then conversely imagining what Billie Eilish or Olivia Rodrigo's post-crisis album would sound like and how much more autonomy and control and experimentationalism would have been allowed for them Mm -hmm. as opposed to Demi Lovato. But also, would Demi Lovato be a viable new pop starlet in this time period? And I think what you're speaking to is maybe not because the truth of the matter is we do live in the era of the auteur pop star who at least is narratively creating all of their own work and is able to write songs and have idiosyncrasy in a way that I think has been a struggle for Demi, but it's hard to know what came first, the Disney machine or Demi Lovato's struggle to do the things that would be asked of her as an aspiring pop star lit in 2023. So it'll be that. And then of course, I do think for everything we've talked about, about the complexity of the way she's dealt with her narrative story, I do think her honesty about that has impacted people and has been an inspiration to at least some people out there and again we can talk about how complex that is but I do think her earnesty her sincerity and her honesty about her struggles and journey I have to imagine has had a positive effect on young fans of hers who struggle with similar things and yeah that is very very commendable and I want to make sure that we give her her flowers for that because that's not easy to do and it's important I would say especially in the body image beauty standard yes eating disorder realm is that it is hard to overstate how intense of a scene she was coming into at a young age where the default was so thin yes, and so white and so blonde and so in shape. I feel like the body positivity movements of the past few years, yeah, I think probably some people might think that that was easy one. It's not. So yeah, I definitely agree that she has done a lot for that particular conversation, I would say. Absolutely. All right, so the moment is here. Let's talk about the pop pantheon. 
Do you have a particular sense of where Demi Lovato belongs in the pop pantheon tiers? I think she might be a blue collar pop star. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think she's flashing the pan. I think she's held on long enough to exist in multiple moments in time and see that. Yes. But I do not think that she has the number one albums, number one songs, the consistency that I think you need to like break out of that. That being said, it's funny saying blue collar pop star, it doesn't quite fit Demi. She's like in this weird other category that I I don't know how many people come on your show and say she, she's like a secret third thing. <laughs> yes. Many a people. Many a yeah, people. Yeah. Yeah. And myself included, honestly. Yeah. But that's, I think, looking at all the tiers, that's where I'm at with Demi. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, continuously relevant for 10 years or so, but never culturally saturating or A-list. I mean, that's very much her. At least three significant breakthrough hits along with a series of lesser known or beloved niche hits. That feels very Demi to me. Yes. What are Demi's signature hits? I'd say it's Heart Attack, Cool for the Summer, and Sorry Not Sorry. Yeah. I feel like those are Demi's real songs that will live on. Yeah. A period of sustained semi-relevance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Smaller than superstar size but decently sized large core fan base that feels right here's a question for you who is a bigger star as a pop musician in 2023 Demi or Selena I think it's Selena I agree I think she's still got gas in the tank to keep doing what she's been doing and I think her taste has brought her through even when she has had her own rocky backstory and narrative yes I guess if you're talking about between the two of them if they were both putting out new albums who would I feel more confident was going to swing and hit it it would be Selena Gomez I agree. I agree. In fact, I haven't addressed this yet, but we put Selena in tier four about a year and a half ago. And I kind of think Selena's probably in tier three at this point. Yeah. But I do think that Demi's in tier four. So I think we can bang the gavel on that one. Last question for you. What is an underrated Demi Lovato song? You had the absolute nonstop pleasure of listening to all of them over the last couple of weeks or so. What is an underrated Demi Lovato song from your journey that you want to put the audience onto that we could send the show out on? Stone cold baby stone cold (laughs) i don't know if that was that a single i don't even know it was a single that didn't chart so it totally qualifies it did not chart okay so that qualifies (laughs) specifically if people are after this podcast are like yes i would like to try out some demi lovato that i don't know her snl performance of stone cold is truly amazing yes and i feel like that is a mode that i can always get down with which is just her kind of stripped down bearing her soul with no accompaniment no costume nothing flashy just her I was at a bar in New Hampshire which why and they were doing karaoke and a random chick did Stone Cold so well that I was like what is happening right now should I get into A&R and like sign this woman Stone Cold is great I think that's a great little torch song ballad that doesn't have some of the sweatiness of her other songs where she's trying for a hit ah absolutely I really like Stone Cold as well glad we picked this one let's go out on Demi Lovato's Stone Cold Molly Mary O'Brien as always this was incredibly fun thank you so much for having me always a pleasure Okay, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Demi Lovato, a certified 
tier four working class pop star. I want to thank the fabulous Molly Mary O'Brien for all of her insight, wisdom, and good humor on this week's episode. To Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. For PJ Vernetti and his help editing this episode. And to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you are listening to it. Get our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Follow us on social at poppantheonpod and me at DJLOUAEXIV. Subscribe to our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash poppantheon. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.